0: He was one of football's most colourful figures of the 1990s. He wore his hair as a mullet, a rat's tail and occasionally as a plait. He drove a hotted up ute and his house pet was a python. He also had a streak of aggression that unnerved the opposition. Sadly his playing days were done at 25. His life since has been even more adventurous and eventful. Daniel Southern, you've packed a bit into uh, those years.
1: I have, Mike. I've been really blessed. I've had a great life and hopefully p- plenty more to come. Hmm. 25 and finished in
0: football through injury. Uh, how difficult was that at the time? I mean, you are a young man. A young man in a good team and playing good football.
1: Yeah, it was really difficult, Mike. And uh, I actually went through a couple of years of, of depression. Um, you know, i Grew up as a footy lover and always had that aspiration and dream of playing in the AFL and was lucky enough to live my dream. And didn't really set myself up for life after football, thinking I'd probably get to 30 um, if I had a great career and yeah hit 25 and it was all over so you know I did go into a bit of a lull for a while and it took me a good two or three years for me to dig myself out of that sort of position and I was lucky enough to you know move forward and have many great adventures since so life's been great Mike.
0: Well the Bulldogs doctor of about the past 50 years Jake Landsberg. A said a great that, man. Yeah I know you're close with him he said that your career was doomed from the time you had a, a knee operation at about 16.
1: Yeah that's right Mike um, I had a pretty promising junior career and at At the age of 15, I unfortunately hurt my knee. I did a, just a lateral meniscus, so a cartilage tear initially and uh, went and had surgery I and mean, at that stage West Coast Eagles had shown a little bit of interest in myself and uh, did 18 months of rehabilitation down at West Coast Eagles and, and during that process had travelled over to Ireland as part of the Australian Junior Team and, and the knee was not too good, Mike. I had um, a second operation after a foreign body had been left in my knee <laughs> after initial one and it was pretty much a degenerative bone-to-bone condition from that point on so it was a ticking bomb. It was only going to get so much miles out of it, and in the end it got me at 25. Jake said that
0: he, your courage was incredible. He said there was no way that they could actually deaden the knee joint when you were playing, and it was so bad that um, he told me you were living in a place in Footscray that had two levels, and on match night you had to sleep downstairs on the couch because you couldn't negotiate the stairs.
1: Yeah, that, that's true, Mike. Yeah, the pain... It's a mental thing, you know, you can sort of dull that pain for so long, but in the end it sort of really broke me down, you know, that start of the year 2000 was my last year as a player, I played in the first eight games of the year, and, and the pain got to level where you're dead right, I couldn't get up the stairs to, wow. to get upstairs, so I'd sleep downstairs, um, couldn't train during the week, um, I'd need to have, you know, some, some help, match day, you know, I'd get some local anaesthetic to try and get me through the game, but I guess the the thing that hurt the most was every time I'd fall, I'd chip bits of bone off, mm. and it would get stuck. And I remember there was one game; it was prior to a game. So I can't remember who we were playing, but we were just doing the warm up, and I chipped a nice big um, bit of bone off in the knee, and the knee actually got stuck. And you know, I got the surgeons and the doctors trying to manipulate my knee yeah. to loosen up so I could go out to play. So uh, it was a mental battle, and yeah, it was tough. It was really sore.
0: I reckon your reputation as a footballer is undervalued because of all the things surrounding you. I mean. The snakes, your hairstyle, the the stud in the ear, and all that sort of stuff. That people have forgotten what a what a capable player you were.
1: Yeah, it doesn't get brought into conversation very often, Mike. As you said, it is always the other surrounding factors that I get remembered for, which mm. is quite disappointing. So I obviously didn't make too much of an impact on on the playing field. But when I look back at my playing days, my, I was just a battler. I was a backman. No, you were I better than that. Oh. I did okay, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I'm proud of what I achieved on the footy field. But you know, I guess my greatest achievement out of it all was playing on some of the greatest games at uh, names who ever played the game. You know, Abletts and and James Hurds and and these sort of guys, Dunstall. You know, I was able to play on these guys and hold my own more often than not. Um, you know, I only played 103 games, but I think I won probably more battles than I lost. So, mm-hmm. you know, considering the opposition, you know, I'm pretty pretty proud of what I achieved.
0: You said yeah, you say you're proud of what you achieved on the football field and you're entitled to be, but I want to remind you of a couple of incidents on the football field.
1: Yeah, I thought that'd come up, Mark. <laughs> I was expecting it. I thought it might have come a little bit earlier, so at least you give me a nice little intro to break me in. Uh,
0: well, let's do them uh, in chronological order. Peter Sumich was the first one, um, the West Coast full forward. Now, I interviewed him last year... And he's he's quite angry, I think, about the fact that he nearly died and he's entitled to be. But I think the part that sort of puzzled him most was the fact that he's never had an apology from you over the wrestling incident at Subiaco in 1994.
1: Yeah, that's fair that he could be angry about the situation. It was... um, Looking back at it, Mike, I was... You know, it was in my first year of footy. I was 19 at that stage. Um, Being a young West Australian who trained with the Eagles... Um, for 18 months prior to getting drafted, it was a big day for me going back to Subaco Oval. And um, footy was pretty tough and rough back then, Mike. And, you know, it was... Um, I remember the incident quite clear. Well, there's the scene yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, well, that's pretty dramatic, isn't it? Yeah, it and, is. and I had... To be honest with you, Mike, I've struggled with that incident since it happened. It was 24 years ago now. And, yeah. And almost daily, if not every week, not exaggerating, it gets brought up in conversation and I quite often try and brush it over and have a bit of a laugh about it and... Um, but it, it really, you know, it affected me enormously. You know, to be honest with you, after that, that, it was actually a week that the actual whole thing sort of dragged out for, forgetting about the actual match day, but um, I, I'd never approached football... Um, with the same vigour that I did prior to that mm-hmm. game. And i lost so much confidence in myself and um, didn't really know how to deal with the media and public profile. And Ivan Milat was actually killing people near Belangelo Forest at that time and I was on the front page of the Herald Sun for a week. And I'd, I was never the same after that incident, Mike. Mm-hmm. And The fact you mentioned that I hadn't apologised to Peter, um, you know, I'm deeply regretful and remorseful for what had happened. Um, But I suppose I was too immature at the time. Mm. I was dealing with these other issues personally that I didn't have the maturity, I guess, to to reach out to Peter to apologise. And I never meant to hurt him. Um, You know, there were some tough blokes playing back then. Yeah. And, you know, if you're in a melee, you know, you do what you have to do for your team. And it was just one of them unfortunate situations where, you know, I actually did think I killed him. I actually did. You know, it was was serious. And, um, you know, I still deal with it today.
0: So when you let him go, finally, because it was was a sort of... In terms of denying someone their, their air passages, it was a long time. When you let him go, what did you think had happened to him?
1: I thought he was dead. You dead. Did, did I did you? say I thought he was dead. Because I, I remember the incident. Was, there was a lot of bodies around at that yeah. stage, from what I remember. I've never actually seen the whole incident ever since. I've seen a little grab of it, but I've never seen you know, the whole episode play out. Um, so I remember having him in the headlock, and, and I remember him going limp. You know, his, mm. his fight, he lost his fight. And I'd let go, and I stood up. And um, I looked down and he, he you know, he was motionless and his eyes had rolled back in his wow. head. And I dead set thought he was dead. And we went in at half-time and we played the game and, you know, copped plenty of booze that day. Don't worry mm. about that it was. Mm. Um, I remember how clear that was, just that the noise that Sue over that day. And anyway, we jumped on a plane and we landed back in Melbourne, not knowing what had happened to Peter. And then there was a swarm of media at Tulleran Airport when we arrived. And I thought, hang on, I don't know what's happened, but it looks like it's no good. And then sort of the, you know, the week that sort of... Took place after that was, you know, as I said before, was pretty traumatic for me. Yeah, and um, yeah, still having issues with it today.
0: Yeah, but you're saying that it's extended to the family, you, uh, Yeah. your wife and 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 your, and your older boy.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's um, so I, I still get judged on that incident. Yeah. And as I said before, it gets brought up, you know, if not daily, you know, definitely every week. And and my wife, who was, you know. Born overseas and came to Australia just a few years ago when we got married and oblivious to sort of my footballing background, yep. you know, she sort of feels it more than what I do where, you know, a lot of times that my son's, we feel it, that my son's character is judged on wow. on my reputation. Yeah, it's totally you No, know, rather than yeah. just a clean slate and, you know, yeah. judge a young fella for who he is and what he does rather than his old man who was Danny Southern who was a bit of a thug on the footy field, which is a lot of what you know the word on the street is do you
0: resent that? Do you resent that image that it was d Southern thug you called yourself Danny then
1: I did because the stage name, <laughs> so I went a little hyphens there, Mike you know I never called myself Danny. I referred to myself as danny but but it 's twofold Mike because you know. Although I struggled with it and still have issues with it, that reputation did actually help me on the footy field to a degree after that. Although I never, as I said, mentioned... I never attacked the contest with the same vigour before. Uh, Mentally and psychologically, it gave me a little bit of a Mm. reputation where if I was going into battle, I knew that most of the times I Mm. have a guy done before I actually stepped yeah. on the field mentally because yeah. you thought maybe, I don't know what's going to happen, it's unpredictable. Because I'm going to try and on clean up. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it worked in my favour to yeah. a degree.
0: You mentioned, you mentioned to me that you'd seen the show, just to to refresh yourself about what the Peter Sumich's um, stance was. And you said before you hadn't apologised and I think you're regretful of that. W- would you seek him out? to apologise, or is it it's just gone now and it's in the past?
1: Uh, it's probably in the past. If, if I did cross... I actually did see Peter once. We came back to live in Australia about five years ago and he was at a concert where I'd seen him and I actually fled... You know, it was fight or flight. And I actually took off. I wasn't ready at that stage to, to go and confront him. Not expecting any backlash or anything like that. You know, he's a very mature man. We, we, we're we growing up now. It was a long time ago. But, you know, I'd I like to see him, to be honest with you. I'd like to put it to, to bed but and apologise. I didn't mean to hurt him. I can do that. Yeah, yeah I, um, I haven't stepped out and, and gone down that path, Mike. And as I said, I was probably a little bit immature at that stage. Mm. And, yeah, it's just something that I have never done. All right,
0: let's leave that one. But... Uh, it's staying more. in the same it's zone. More, well, yeah. The other one,
1: the famous one,
0: was Michael Gardner playing, I think, his seventh or eighth game uh, at the Whitten Oval. Yes. And the gang of four. Yeah. Southern, Krediuk, Dent and Ellis. And I think all four of you went for the young Michael Gardner. And then, you uh, know, buffeting him, harassing him. Uh, and uh, Michael Gardner wasn't a scared footballer, but the look on his face that day was, where the hell am I here? It's like he was being attacked on the street.
1: Yeah, there was definitely fear in Michael's eyes that day. My, we um, we were a pretty ruthless footy team back in the late 90s, uh, the Bulldogs. We were um, pretty feared and we had a lot of guys who would push the boundaries and would do whatever it took to win. And we, um, as a club, as a team, and under Plough, as our coach at the time, we'd identify players most weeks from the opposition who could potentially cause us damage. And that particular game, Michael Gardner as a young upcomer was uh, identified as someone that could sort of, you know, take it take hold of the game and, and make it difficult for us. So we had this player who was in the gun, anyway. And, That's right. And that, that was week, there a
0: player every week that was in the gun? In the gun. Yeah. So
1: that just meant that we'd go and just give them a hard time, step on mm. their toes, give them a pinch, give them a little bit of a bump, a bit of a niggle. And, and Michael was the one that day. And and we thought, oh, I had a lot to do with it. Michael, I've got to be frank, we, we as a back line, the yeah. side that, you know, he's most likely going to line up, up forward, so we thought we'd just give him a little welcome to the kennel. It was our last game at the, at the Western Whitnoble so so um, we thought we'd, uh, yeah, welcome to the, the doghouse. Uh,
0: after the West Coast game and the Gardner incident, the next week you were reported for, no you weren't reported were you? No, you, I, was no cited, you I was cited, I was later cited. Yeah. By Ian Collins? Yes. Of, of the AFL? Yes. For what seemed to be an innocuous wrestling incident?
1: Yeah, you agree I'm, with that? I'm really disappointed still of what took place there. You, like, you got a week. I got a week for wrestling. And, and the incident, it was Scott West. I remember it clearly. That Scott West and it was Shane Crawford and Richard Taylor. And there were three of them just having it. Were, you know, little featherweights. <laughs> you know, so I've gone in, I've grabbed Richard Taylor and I've grabbed Crawford like this. I've rolled them to the ground. I laid on top of them, holding them for about five, ten seconds from what I remember, and got sighted and got a week for wrestling. And I think... To this day, I might be wrong, I, I believe I was the first and maybe the only person ever suspended for wrestling. And that was the last game of the home and away season. So I missed the first final, uh, went and did some... Went and did the, the tan and had some, In, what they call yeah. these days, some you know, hamstring awareness, I guess you'd call it, and ended up missing the whole final series. And, and it was an opportunity there for our club. It was our greatest opportunity to have a, have a stab at the big one.
0: Terry Wallace said that had you not been suspended... For that last round incident, he said, "There's no doubt that he believed the, cl- the club would have played in the grand final."
1: I believe that too. Uh, Darren Jarman in that prelim, that 97 prelim, I remember watching it, and we were 28 points up with 10 minutes to go, mm. and then Jarman went berserk, and and uh, I'd like to believe that if I was out there, that wouldn't have happened. You know, and I think that why. Was, I just wouldn't have let it happen. I reckon Michael would have made sure if he was going to go near it, he was going to earn it. You know, he, still, he was a magical player. He was a brilliant footballer. I'm yeah. and, and not saying I would have been able to stop him because, you know, we had a great team and you know, some magnificent defenders at the time. But, you know, I would have liked the thought that if the, it was on the, on the line and it was a grand final up for stakes that um, I wouldn't have let him kick five, that's for sure.
0: Do you, think, do you think that the AFL said we're going to make this mob pay for the way they play their football?
1: I believe that's the case and I I, I think I was a scapegoat and I still think, you know, it probably wasn't the right image that AFL was looking Mm -hmm. for at that that time. Um, You know, there was a Sumich one, there was a Gardner one, um, you know, I think I was there for the taking and and they picked me off and I was bitterly disappointed. I was angry as when I left that tribunal that night. And um, I might have said some stuff that I shouldn't have when I was really? leaving. Yeah, because yeah, I was that... I was ropeable. I was dead set, angry. And um, that's history, you know. It's... Yeah, it was meant to be.
0: It's history, but have you moved on? Have you been able to put the footy stuff behind you?
1: No, no. I haven't, no. I'd, not a day goes past where I don't wish that I could have my time again. You know, I sort of feel like I'd really underachieved as a, as a player... And, you, know, you mentioned in football by the ultimate success. You're either a brand-like medalist, individual accolades, which weren't important for me, or that team success, you know. When you see Dermot Brown, a five-time Premiership player, or, I'm so envious mm. and so jealous of these guys. And, and good luck to them, you know. I'm rapt that people will get an opportunity to play in a Premiership. But I'm bitterly, I am I guess, jealous yeah. of that. That's understandable. Of that.
0: Daniel, have a look at this photo here. This is uh, your last year as a player. You're obviously in civvies there and being carried off by your teammates. What what was the occasion?
1: I, I retired mid-season. Yeah. And so it was, must have been around 12 or 13. I think I actually... What happened, I was played those first seven, eight games of the season. I can't really recall how many it was. Seven it, it was. Seven, seven it was. Seven or yeah. eight. And then yep. when it had surgery on my knee tried to do the rehab to try and come back and as we mentioned before it was pretty sore so that's when I decided to pull the pin and the club thought they would honour me and give me a little bit of a send off so I actually ran out onto the ground with the players before the game and they had a big uh, caricature of me on the banner and um, Yeah. yeah, at the end of the game the boys dragged me out there and chucked me up on their shoulders and um, got the that same That made you feel good. Yeah, I'm pretty excited there, aren't I? There's a lot of emotion if you look at the photo. The, yeah. the, the lads are pretty happy. Yeah. So, hopefully I had a little bit of an impact on, on those guys who I played footy with and, yeah, we had fun. We went in and we sung the song for the last time uh. as, as teammates and, yeah, it was a, it was a great memory. Yeah, it, even Nathan Brown's taken by the occasion. Yeah, <laughs> it took a lot. You know, Brownie was pretty <laughs> self-centred. It was all about Brownie. He was a great young fella. But, um, yeah, the, we we're having a good time. Is it true, in the Year of the Dogs, did, did you discover
0: that at some point the Bulldogs had planned or considered uh, trading you?
1: Well, I'm not sure if it was that year. or It might have, been, might have been later on, but there was talk one season that, yeah, I was tradable. Um, you didn't like that, did you? No, nah, not at all. No. I was overseas at the time. And no one at the club had ever spoken to me about it. Um, I'm extremely loyal as a person, and there was an opportunity in the early days where, when Jared Neesham was setting up the free man of mm. Dockers, that he was pretty keen to get me go back home and play to him. I played under Jared in a premiership with Claremont yep. back in the Waffle. Yep, yep, yeah. As, a, as an 18-year-old, it must have been. And so there was opportunities, and I'm an extremely loyal man, and you know I, I put my heart and soul into the Bulldogs, and to know that. You know, everyone's tradable, you know, and as I said, I wasn't a champion, I was just a battler, so, you know, if they could do it, they would have. But it didn't happen, but I wasn't happy. No, no, I wasn't happy at all. You came from
0: a broken home, correct? Yeah, that's yeah. right. How was your mum when you were running a mark at 14 and 15?
1: Yeah, well, I was actually living with my father. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so parents got divorced when I was about 10, I think it was. And um, so we, we were raised by my father and he did a magnificent job. There was myself, I had a brother who's passed away since, and, and my sister. And we were given a lot of freedom, let's say. like Our parents put a lot of trust in us as, as young, young children we were. Um, so we, we fended for ourselves a little bit. Dad, Dad gave us, a, you know, a little bit of rope. We stretched that rope as far <laughs> as we could, but, you know, plenty of love, plenty of support. Yeah, good. Uh, he entrusted, you know, the values that he had instilled in us at a young age that we we'll there to make the right decisions and when we're confronted with, with different, you know... Things that happen in life. And yeah, we made the right call most of the time. Your, your mother was
0: born in Africa.
1: Yeah, in Tanzania, and, and she. Which you, you left
0: Australia, I think, in early two thousands. Did you not to move to the Middle East?
1: Yeah, yeah, I left in. Oh, yeah. So mum, mum, during my footy days, spent a few years living in Kenya. So I was lucky enough that post oh, you know, during the off season, most years, I was fortunate enough to go travelling. And I uh, travelled with mum through Kenya on a number of occasions and just had wonderful experience yeah. on safari there. And, and it opened up my, my world in many ways. And uh, you know, I've travelled extensively, Michael, I've been blessed. I've travelled to over 50 countries around the world. And I lived in the Middle East for, for 10 years, uh, based in Cairo. Ten years, in Cairo. 10 years in Cairo. 10 years in Cairo. That took about 30 years off my life. It's a, <laughs> it's a crazy well, place. I will ask
0: you about Cairo. Everyone at the Bulldogs says when I tell them I'm talking to you, say, uh, I, he lived in this place where, as soon as he opened the back door or lifted the blind, uh, he, he could see the pyramids.
1: Yeah, right? yeah. It's, we we have, we own an apartment, and it's on the outskirts of, of Cairo, and yeah, the pyramids of Giza, uh, about a kilometre away as the crow flies. But we've got an uninterrupted view of the pyramids yeah. from every room in the house. It's only a small apartment, but it's it's magical. You know, I. I look at them in awe every single day. Yeah. Every sunrise, every sunset, or oh, not up for too many sunrises, but when I was up, I'd go and just peer out at the pyramids and have a look and look in amazement. But the Egyptians take it for granted. They, Do they? Yeah, it's just a big pile of stones that have been out there for <laughs> thousands of years and, yeah, not real great significance for a lot of the locals. Um, some of my wife's, my wife's family haven't even been to the pyramids. Really? Yeah, which is quite amazing. And she's local. She, she's a, yeah. yeah, born and raised in yeah. Cairo.
0: Yeah. Um, her name's Re- Re-ham. Re-ham. Reham. Reham, yeah. You've got two kids. Now,
1: yep. is she traditional Muslim? Oh, she was born and raised a Muslim, mate, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, she's, she's a Muslim so as it comes. A- and, and you converted for yeah. her? No, not for her, Mike, no, no. no. It's sort of... religion's a something I don't really like to elaborate a lot on. Yeah, but I am a Muslim. I converted about 14 years ago. Um, religion has the power to unite, but it also has the power to divide. Yeah. Um, you know, so I don't like to elaborate too much about But, yes, I, I converted to Islam about 14 years ago. OK,
0: last one on there. Yeah. Uh, Ramadan was completed recently. Did yeah. you participate in
1: Ramadan? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's um, it's a wonderful time of the year. You know, it's it's challenging mentally, um, but you know we, we fast because it, it helps you um, sympathise with those who aren't so fortunate. You don't have the mm-hmm. accessibility to water and food, and um, you know it's it's a powerful time of the year for I, um for us as Muslims. And yeah, Ramadan's a, a great month.
0: So your your boys are uh, your two boys are being brought up Muslim? Yes. Yeah. Do they like footy?
1: Love it. Oh, right. Zachary, he, he's seven. He's yeah. obsessed. And to the point that we're, we're worried because he just loves it. And, um, you know, he gets up in the morning and he's straight on YouTube and he's looking at, you know, the good old days. You know, mm. you want to know the history of. AFL, VFL footy. Like watching you or watching No, there's oh. not much to watch of me Mike <laughs> <laughs> There's no vision of me thank thank God for that because yeah, it would be quite embarrassing but he just loves it. He's a Hawthorne supporter. Is he? Yeah. So Who's he just his favourite? To, he, he would tell you Ty Vickery is his favourite <laughs> <laughs> Would he? You, yeah he would You know what,
0: yeah. no, no disrespect to Ty but I've never heard anyone say before that Ty Vickery was their favourite player. Yeah,
1: he, he, he loved him for whatever reason but um, yeah, he loves Cyril he loves Burgoyne, he loved Hodgie when he was there, um, he loves the old players. He loves Lee Matthews, and he he, he loves always Lee Matthews. Yeah, he always asks me who's tougher. You know, am I tougher than Dermot Broderick? <laughs> was I tougher than you know Dipper? And when he comes to Lee Matthews, he says, "You weren't tougher than Lee Matthews." Does he, at yeah, 70, say that. At 70, he snapped a goalpost. So <laughs> there's no way in the world you're tougher than <laughs> well, Lee. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Take me back to when uh, your first boy was born. Just the days leading up to that, you were in Cairo.
1: Yeah. Was there civil war then or was it an uprising? Yeah, not quite civil war. The Arab sp- Spring had taken place and uh, there was a revolution went down in Egypt, in Cairo. And so my wife was heavily pregnant. She was actually two weeks uh, overdue. And um, the revolution took place. Uh, the city became quite lawless. And uh, all the police removed themselves from the streets. There was about 30,000 prisoners were released. And where we're living near the pyramids there was a big prison just down the road, so when all the prisoners were on a the run, they came through our area. And so it wasn't, it wasn't scary, in a you sense. you sure? It, it was... Wasn't there gunfire? At- yeah, it was gunfire whizzing around left, right and centre around our place. And, the, you know, the, as I said, it became lawless and the police had removed themselves from the situation. So the actual day that Zachary was born was the 2nd of February in 2011. It was called the Battle of the Camel, the day it was quite a violent... Day in the streets of Cairo, but to move on the streets, every couple of hundred metres there was checkpoint set up. And so when you pulled up and as a foreigner, it wasn't a good place to be at the time because the, um, the government had said that, you know, the foreigners have played a hand in the revolution mm-hmm. and, and they'll target in foreigners. And um, I was working in tourism at the time and so we evacuated all of the pretty much foreigners or had left egypt you know there wasn't too many of us left on the ground and and so and when we were driving on streets i mentioned these checkpoints so when you pulled up to a checkpoint it was armed by 10 or 20 men you know with every sort of weapon you can imagine you know so you'd stop at this checkpoint and they'd ask you a few questions and you didn't know whether they were you know locals civilians looking after their own patch of turf or they'll the government thugs who are out there to terrorize the people or whether they're criminals who were set up So, sort of, you know, you drive your few hundred metres, you stop again, I'd ask you questions, you know, my Arabic was pretty butchered, Mm. pretty raw, but, um, you know, we managed to get through and and the day he was born was, you know, it was the best day of my life and then it was one of the most, I don't really know how to describe it because, you know, he was born and I was so joyful and so emotional, but outside there was helicopters flying around, there was gunfire, there was such uncertainty and... um, you know, we had to ride it out because, you know, he wouldn't have a passport to travel.
0: Was he born at home or in a hospital? No,
1: in a hospital. We yeah. got to the hospital, which was about a kilometre away from Miram Tahrir or Tahrir Square where the, where the revolution took place. And so... Yeah, we knew we had to ride it out, and you know we had to have a convoy. You know, after he came into the world, and a couple of days when we we're leaving the hospital, we had to have a convoy of family come and make sure that we escorted me home safely. As a foreigner at that time, it wasn't the safest. And so did place the family come? Yeah, they did. Not yeah. my family. Yeah, no. yeah. Our, our Egyptian family, my wife's family. Yeah.
0: yeah. You're working for Klontarf at the moment. I want to know what the essence of your message is to the kids. They are predominantly. Disadvantaged kids, aren't they, that come into Klongtahf, and football is the vehicle to try to get them uh, to straighten up and concentrate on schooling and stuff.
1: So yeah, it's an. In, we work with Indigenous young men, yeah. so it's purely Indigenous boys who, who I work or young men. So my message I pass: a lot of the young fellas are coming from a hard, tough place. And I walk with them in in, in numbers uh, on the streets daily. Yeah, you know, and I see the prejudice mm. that takes place in society for these young fellas every day. And, you know, our, our message to the young fellas is just get to school, try your best there, have a crack, finish school with an education and then um, transition to full-time employment. So as a mentor for these young men, basically I try and just uh, pass on my life experiences. Yep. I'm not an angel. You know, I've made plenty of mistakes. And you tell life. them all about what yeah, you like as course. a teenager. Yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely yeah. do. Because a lot of guys are walking the same path. You know, and, and you mentioned footy before, we, we don't run a professional football program, but it's so engaging for our young men. Uh, most of them are so talented that and they have a natural love of the game, so we just let them go and play, and you know the, it is the vehicle it helps attract them to school. and then we sort of let the teachers take care of the, the business in their classroom, we support them around them, to make good life decisions, make sure they're taking care of themselves, so their well-being um, is hugely important, um, particularly the mental well-being you know so we're really positive with these young fellas and constantly pumping them up and you know if they do make a blue which we all do we don't whip them we get them back on their bike and we get them moving forward and and trying to get to make better decisions when they're in that right. same position again
0: hey daniel there's 180 people have sat in that chair and most of them have told fascinating stories none more than you well thanks oh, <laughs> and it's been brilliant talking to you and and talking about lots of things that uh that have been so pivotal to your life, and, and that we know so much about on the outside looking in.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. It's actually been good to air a few things, Mike. Yeah, so thanks well for done. That. Thanks, general.